Engaging conversation with Jalen Nye and Andrew Gross. Breaking news with Eileen Bell and sports with Morley Scott. This is the Afternoon News on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Well, look at that. We made it to Friday together. Well, not all of us. Jalen and I not in this afternoon. She is down in uh, Calgary uh, performing or fulfilling, I think we agreed to say, fulfilling her military duties. Not sure exactly what all that entails, um, but she's doing it. Um, Mr. Ulrich, I see that you're uh, filling in as our operator for the first hour. It's going to be a busy one for you, sir. Well, uh, you, you may have noticed since you don't actually look through the window, I've been doing it all week. Yeah, you know what? But typically my back is to <laughs> yeah, that window. Because I mean. so, right. you're facing the other way. But now that you're in uh, the chair there, you can see. Exactly. And I'm so glad to see you. And I know people get upset, so we can't spend any amount of time on this. People get upset when following a two-hour Oilers now, um, I say something about the Oilers. But may I just ask <laughs> you a question that I know has not been asked in the last two hours? Let's hear it. All right. So I tweeted out last night something along the lines of, uh, I didn't order a pizza for this game. I don't even remember what the tweet was, because typically I, I eat, what, 81 pizzas a year? <laughs> so, at least. Not more, yeah. Yeah, so I, I tweeted out, I didn't you know, order a pizza for this game, and I thought at that point we weren't going to win, then we did. Um, so several people tweeted back that I must now not, never order a pizza during an Oilers game, because that oh. obviously affected the outcome. And I just wanted to ask you, as an expert on the team, is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm superstitious as well, so I would, mm. you know, I believe in things like that at times. But uh, I mean, pizza goes with hockey, so come exactly. on, you need to eat pizza, especially for the Oilers. It's a long season, I'm sure. Uh, it's already been a long season. Well, that's true. Man. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely order pizza next time. Okay, well, so what I was thinking about uh, when I saw that tweet, and I'm superstitious as well, is that perhaps what I'll do is, as soon as the game was over, order the pizza, so I can say that okay, well, that's the the stream of things that you watch the Oilers win, then you order the pizza, so I still get my pizza. But like you say, I actually quite enjoy eating it during the game. Which, by the way, what a fabulous game. It, like two different teams, eh? Just oh, absolutely. Well, tomorrow you can effort. get away without going with the pizza, because it's an early one. Yeah, what time is that game? It's at 11, so maybe you have a bagel or something with the... That has cold pizza written all over <laughs> no, it, to be honest true. with you. Perhaps I'll get the pizza tonight and uh, eat the rest tomorrow. So listen, the reason I... Uh, I just wanted to warn you, because you're here for the first hour. I have booked, with J- in Jalen's absence, a full show. So you're going to be, it's like we're giving, we're not, but it's like we're giving tickets away all afternoon. You're going to be answering the phones like nobody's business. Let me tell you what's going on, and our listeners at the same time. We're going to, in just a moment, I talk to Adam Sweet. He's the chief of staff for the Edmonton Economic Development Corporation. Of course, we're talking to him about the Amazon HQ2 bid, the contents of which none of us know, but we'll try and see if we can't squeeze some details out of them. I'm going to talk to uh, somebody who has raised over $40 million in a charity called Sleeping Children Around the World who wants you and me to wear pajamas to work next week or the week after. I'm not sure. So let's find out about that. Because if you're still operating the show then, I would encourage it. Uh, I'm also going to talk to a lo- local author. Uh, he made he wrote a book called Loot for the Taking, and it caught my attention because it's uh, basically about dumb criminals, and I love stories about dumb criminals. Uh, although it is fiction, it's based on a real event. And then listen to this. <clears throat> Excuse me. I wish I had some kind of music to play. Had I done more show prep, I probably would have had some kind of trumpet music right here. Courtney and Dave Wilson from HD, HGTV's Master of Flip are going to be in studio. Do you watch that show at all? No, I do not. You could have said yes. Well, 
I will. I'm, hopefully, they'll keep me engaged enough that I'll want to watch it. I, think I will go ahead will. and watch it. They're house flippers from Tennessee. Yeah. They used to be, I think, country it, yeah. singers. Yeah, and then they became house flippers. He's a contractor. She's a real estate agent. One of them's Canadian. I can't remember which one, but we'll figure that out. And, and then I'm going to talk uh, to Nadine Bailey. She's. I've talked to her before about this time every year. Uh, she's the artistic director for the Edmonton Ghost Tours, which last time I was in New Orleans, I went on sort of something like that. So I'd like to see what she's got planned for Edmonton because it would be far less expensive. Now, here's the funny thing. Of all the guests that I reached out to yesterday to get on the show today to keep this thing flowing along, the one guest who didn't get back to me, uh, so I don't know if we're going to have this guest, is a reporter from the Richmond News. And you would have thought, if you sent out all the emails at the same time to all these people, the person most likely to jump at the opportunity for more exposure would be a reporter from the Richmond News. Not, I, not, I hope I'm not casting shadows on the Richmond News, but it's probably a small publication who would probably, a reporter who would probably appreciate a little little, you know, coverage in Alberta. So we're, we're working on that because he's got a story about a great pumpkin heist that's been taking place in Richmond from a farmer's field. And it's, a, it's an interesting story because there's a huge twist to who's actually stealing this farmer's pumpkin. So if we don't get him, I'll at least tell the story. And as we've had all week, I've got tickets for Depeche Mode. I got Roger Waters tickets. So we'll have to do that at some point. And it's Friday. So as you know, on Fridays, you listeners, uh, we always dig deep into the big blue folder of stories that we didn't get to earlier in the week. And there's a lot of them. So packed show. You're losing money not to stay with me till 6 o'clock. And, oh, and I'll check in with Reed Wilkins, of course. And I'll check in with uh, Morley Scott to set up tomorrow's football game. So I got just a ton of guests. So here's what we're going to do. Let's take the break right now and get that one out of the way so I have the most amount of time to talk to Adam Sweet, Chief of Staff, and we'll get this cart rolling. Well, how nice to hear Jalen Nye's voice, even if it's just on a commercial on a Friday afternoon. Gives me comfort, makes me feel warm inside. All right, so listen, we've all since September been talking about uh, this Amazon HQ2. I think you all know about it. Proposed corporate headquarters for that giant online retailer and tech company, Amazon. Now, they announced the initiative along with a request for proposals from governments, economic development organizations back in September 2017. Bids closed yesterday. Among the cities bidding is Edmonton, although the details of that bid have not been uh, made public yet. Joining me right now, Adam Sweet, Chief of Staff, Edmonton Economic Development Corporation. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Andrew. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for taking the time uh, to do this. I wondered uh, if perhaps we could set the table first, if there's possibly anybody who's been living under a rock since September. Um, What exactly is on the line here? What is it we're bidding for, and what could potentially be the impact for Edmonton? This was a request for proposals from Amazon for their second headquarters. Um, They, in their proposal uh, document, spoke about the idea of uh, essentially recreating what they have on that first, their first headquarters in Seattle, which is about $5 billion of investment and about 50,000 jobs. Wow. 50,000 jobs immediately or 50,000 jobs over time? Uh, over time. So I think 10 years is the... About that, yeah. And it, yeah. Kind of, it would depend on essentially um, kind of where, where they're looking to set up and the speed at which they could get uh, online. You know, obviously a positive thing would be a great thing for the city, for the province, for the country, uh, but, you know, it's not without its uh, detractors. So let me ask first, the details of the bid not made public, why is that and when will they be made public? 
So this is a competitive request for proposals. This is a, a competition to be able to attract a very big prize in Amazon. And submitting the bid was only the first step in the proposal. We, we're actually in this to win this, and we believe that we need to be as competitive as possible and keep those, those pieces that would be um, used in negotiations and discussions, um, kind of keep the, the cards close to the chest, if you will, for the next step. Um, there's also private business information that's there, uh, that's, that's in the proposal that we would not be releasing. Um, but what I would say is that anything that does have a, a public impact, so uh, rezoning or land sales or anything like that, anything that has a public impact would have to go to council per the normal processes uh, for a public decision. So while the, the bid that has the competitive elements in it and that private sector information is, uh, is remaining confidential, Anything that would have a public impact will would would go out into public per the normal processes. Ah, okay. So my experience, and it's many years ago, in uh, requests for quotation or requests for proposals, um, dates back to the steel industry, and and you know twenty years ago or more. Can't remember how long I've been doing this, but uh, more than twenty years ago. But typically, while it's quite common. Um, to keep those details private, and particularly because you may be bidding on some similar project uh, down the road, you don't want your competitors to know how you bid the last time or what you had in the package. So all of that's understandable. Mm -hmm. But what I find curious, and I just wanted to get your reaction on it, so now we're hearing stories of different cities um, presenting gifts to Amazon or taking out to advertising. I think Calgary took out advertising and has a video they're hoping will go viral. Is that not sort of contrary to the nature of a request for quotation, uh, aren't they all supposed to be, you know, take your best shot in writing and shut up? <laughs> I can't speak to what our competitors are doing, uh, particularly other competitors in this province. But what I can say is that, you know, we as uh, as the folks who've been leading this this charge um, are extremely proud of all the business, government, nonprofit, and the post secondary leaders who've come together over the last four weeks. To be able to tell Edmonton's story, and this, the, the 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 competitive advantages that we have here, are ones that actually stand on their own merit. And it it goes t as an example. Just over this last year, we've actually been able to attract over 100 million dollars in economic growth for our city, and about which is about 500 jobs or so, um, from everything from uh, HelloFresh, the distributors there, to a Japanese hotel chain to getting five different Edmonton region companies exporting into Costco, Japan, um, to a major cannabis producer that's coming in as well. The, the story of Edmonton's economic opportunity is one that we believe stand on its own and doesn't necessarily need all the bedazzling that uh, you know other competitors might be doing. Although I do like Calgary's video. It made me laugh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that that's going to land them Amazon. And what's your feel on that, uh, by the way, that you know Calgary bidding against Edmonton, which is fair, you know, absolutely. Um, but as uh, Edmontonian, of course, I wanted to come to Edmonton, but as an Albertan, I'm fine with it coming to Alberta. And as a Canadian, I'm fine with it coming to Canada. Is, is, you know, is that your take as well? That's, that's always our take. Um, we work with Calgary Economic Development on a, on a whole variety of different initiatives, particularly when we go international. When we go on international trade missions, we are Canada first. Um, and you know, then it's you know, what can we get into Alberta, and then what can we get into our cities. 
um, we, we we see them as a you know there's certain areas where we certainly compete, but overall it's a, it's very much a collaborative nature of saying you know, what can we get into the province because when when one Albertan succeeds, all Albertans can succeed, and that's that's where a lot of our focus becomes. You mentioned a moment ago how proud you were of all the stakeholders basically that came together to put this proposal together. Mm-hmm. Um, so who are the stakeholders? I know uh, <laughs> you know council as Don Iveson came out back in September and said, well, we're not giving tax breaks or whatever. So who are all the stakeholders that put this bid together? So I, w- I will go as general as saying, um, you know, the, the, the all three orders of government uh, have been engaged in this, as well as the post-secondary community. I don't want to get into specifics of kind of the, the different business uh, leaders, because then we start getting into questions about, okay, well, what are the elements of that is, that is in the competitive bid? Um, but I'll say that it has been, um, it has been a, a, a group of... Um, uh, folks who are driven to tell Edmonton's story and to to attract Amazon here. Out of pure curiosity, this is selfish curiosity. <laughs> so, like I say, I, I've I've put together these bids a long, long time ago for mm-hmm. major projects for steel, and and among the things that just make you lose your hair are are some of the requirements uh, from the buyer. So, whether it be CanCon or Canadian content requirements, or you know, detailed technical specifications, or was Aside from getting all these uh, stakeholders together, and was this a massive bid? Was it hard to do, or or was it just a matter of telling our story? <laughs> um, it uh, as the 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 tired faces on uh, on our fourth floor would uh, attest to. It was a uh, it was a Herculean effort by all the folks who were involved um, to try to pull it together as quickly as we did. Um, but it certainly was. I wouldn't put it in in a negative connotation. I'd say actually it was. It's been incredibly useful because it's also made us realize just how many different assets um, we weren't even aware of that mm-hmm. were opportunities for us to uh, to market out globally. And as we've already now started taking ideas from this process to say, hey, we sh- you know we could look at um, X or we could look at Y in this different place in this different place. And we've started already using the information we gained to go after um, you know new companies and new spaces. Um, and this is something that just, uh, I would say, wouldn't have necessarily been possible five years ago. But now that Edmonton is taking bigger and bigger steps onto the global stage and we're, we're understanding what we have here um, and how to tell that story, this is what allows us to do something like bring a Google DeepMind here, the first time outside of the UK that they have come. And the Google's DeepMind is like the elite of Google. And they came to partner up with the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute at the U of A. So being able to realize just what we have here is actually um, almost as much of an advantage or as much of a benefit as it has been to, to making it further along in the, uh, in the Amazon process. I know you can't disclose specific details, but one that I am curious about as well is if there was a site suggested for this, if, there's, if, if you knew were we successful that this was where it would go. Um, so we've certainly, you know, our, our bid certainly does uh, speak to, you know, different locations and ideas of, of what a headquarters could look like, um, because that's part of what they asked for in the request for proposals, to say what would a, you know, a headquarters space or campus area look like. Um, and so that is, uh, there's certainly elements of that in, 
in the bid, but I can't get I can't go much sure. further than, than than that. Yeah, no problem. I said a moment ago that uh, even something this uh, big and positive and uh, with such an impact, potential impact on a on a city and a province has its detractors. So let me quote from one of them. He uh, his name is Dan Shaw. He's a lecturer at Dal Dalhousie University uh, School of Business in Halifax. He says, "quote An investment this large would fundamentally alter a town. Other businesses, including local startups that employ highly skilled technology workers, may struggle to compete." Pete, uh, and suggested that uh, Amazon has deep pockets, for example, and that their starting salaries could be in the $90,000 for an entry-level job, making it impossible for other local startups to compete. So mm-hmm. what do you say to that? I'm, I'm always challenged to uh, disagree with the professor, as <laughs> my GPA would demonstrate. Um, but what I would say is that we, uh, we do not believe this is a zero-sum game. We don't think that this is a situation of uh, if Amazon comes in, everybody else loses. We actually see this as, um, pardon the expression, but one plus one can equal three. Because what happens when you have somebody like an Amazon come in, or you have a major player come in, it enhances the, the ecosystem. It actually starts driving new interest towards that space to say, okay, this is actually a ma- Edmonton becomes a major player in the technology sector, and you start seeing you know shifts in programs for training. You start seeing um, folks moving here as opposed to moving to a Toronto or moving to a Silicon Valley. You start seeing that shift that actually the the size of the market in that space increases at the same time that you actually have uh, the demand on the market coming through. We also believe that this, you know, having an opportunity to be this close to um, that, you know, to to Amazon, a massive online real retailer, provides an opportunity for Edmonton businesses to be able to participate in that space mm. as well to get into into Amazon's um, uh, supply chain. So it's it becomes we see this as being a, a net positive. Um, we see this as you know, more more jobs and higher paying jobs is actually a good thing, um, I would argue, um, particularly in uh, in the technology sector. Yeah, great points. Uh, you know, I'm thinking as you spoke of uh, out in a little uh, fishing boat, though, I got to be honest with you, and landing a tuna, you don't want a tuna that's bigger than your boat. Uh, so, you know, some concern that I have heard is that, okay, but if you have this major employer who's having a major impact on a local economy, that they hold all the cards. So if in 10 years they say, well, we're pulling out unless we get those tax breaks that Mayor Iveson said we're not going to get, or unless we get more concessions from government, was that taken into consideration? I can't speak to the the questions about what what political elements would be. Um, you know, our mandate is to seek out investment uh, for the city. This is something that we've had great success in this year. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, about $100 million, over $100 million in economic growth just this year alone in, in attracting new uh, businesses and in helping others expand out. In terms of what would happen you know, down the road, you use that analogy of bringing a tuna in. As we said right at the start, that 50,000 jobs and this massive investment is over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, is, if there's one thing that um, that I believe is that we would, uh, you know, our council would do this in a way that is measured and that is appropriate and that ensures that uh, you know we're, we th- this investment is growing the city and improving the city. Um, that's that that is that that is what I would believe personally. Um, in terms of in terms of the questions of, of what it could be. Those are more political questions that are a bit out of our mandate. For sure. Adam Sweet, Chief of Staff, Edmonton Economic Development Corporations, who I've been talking to. Uh, any word on when they're going to make a decision? They, if there's one thing Amazon does, is they move fast. Uh, so we've been, what we understand from the RFP uh, process is that 
they are going to start evaluating bids immediately. Um, they want to be up and operational uh, by early 2019, late 2018. So this is a, a question of deciding very quickly. Um, I think this is also something that um, uh, they want to get up and running, given potential changes to U.S. domestic policy um, and foreign policy. And that's, there, there's certain dynamics that come into play there. I would imagine the successful bidder will be notified by drone as well. Uh, <laughs> Adam Sweet, as I say, Chief of Staff, uh, EEDC, thank you so much for uh, clarifying a few things and for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks for the opportunity and uh, have a great weekend. You as well. Cheers. Bye-bye. Engaging conversation with Jalen Nye and Andrew Gross. Breaking news with Eileen Bell and sports with Morley Scott. This is the Afternoon News on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Still to come in this half hour, I'll be speaking to Don Levers, an author of the book Loot for the Taking. Uh, you could subtitle that Really Dumb Criminals. I know that's going to be a fun conversation. Right now, though, I'm joined by Dave Dryden. He is with the organization called Sleeping Children Around the World. He joins me on phone from Toronto. Hi, Dave. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'll tell you right now that you can imagine, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, how many different people have some sort of great idea for a charity, a fundraiser, and how many of those come across our desk on any given day. But this one jumped out at me. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, uh, because it involved me not having to get dressed for work. So for the, for the sake of our listeners, let's start by just painting the big picture. How long has this charity been around? What is it that you're trying to to accomplish? Uh, the charity has been around for a long time. My parents started it back in 1970, so we're in our 47th year. Hmm. And it, it's a charity that basically is trying to promote sleep with young children uh, in countries around the world where they don't have opportunities for good sleep. And, and so you know, we, when I read sorry. that, uh, sorry to interrupt, but when I read that, and I want to make sure our listeners go down the same road I did, when I first read that, I thought, what? You know what I mean? Well, that's a problem, children sleeping around the world. But you're talking about their ability to have the right tools to even get to sleep, a bed, uh, a screen in case, uh, you know, there's uh, mosquitoes and, and this sort of thing. You're talking about kits that you want to give to these kids. You're ta- you've got it right on. And, and that's the idea. If we go to a country like Bangladesh and there are children there that are living in really poverty conditions, uh, they aren't getting a good night's sleep. They're just sleeping on the ground. And so we provide the bedding, mattress, uh, mosquito net. But we also figure that you want kids to be healthy and well-rested that way, but you want them to be purposeful the next day. So we provide some school supplies at the same mm. time. That's fabulous. And, and you say you've been doing this for, what, 47 years, did you say? Yes, yeah. And your parents uh, started, and, and $40 million raised in that time. How much does each, each bed kit cost? Each bed kit costs $35. So over the course of the years, the bed kit costs have gone up, but we've been able to give these bed kits to over a million and a half children. Wow, good on you. And how do you decide, if you don't mind me asking, who gets them, what countries you're going to provide for? Well, we, we have a standard of saying... Uh, if the per capita income in a country is less than $4,000 a year, then we would consider that country. And there are countries that don't have any social safety net or uh, anything like that. Then we have to find people in the country that we could trust to work with because we don't ship things over. We purchase the items right in the country itself. Ah. Uh, and 
then what we do is once all the items are put together, we work with the uh, local people to pick the children that are appropriate to get this. And then we send a team overseas to give out these bed kits to make sure it's done and to take pictures of the children receiving them, and those pictures go to the donor. Nice. And now, you know, every charity that raises money for anything gets asked the question I'm about to ask you, so please don't take offense, but I know it'll be on our texting page. Uh, How is it possible that there's so many charities around the world basically not attempting to do the exact same thing, but to help the exact same countries, the exact same children? How is it possible um, that they're all necessary? Uh, I don't know why it's all necessary. What we know when we go to a place like Bangladesh or the Philippines or India or Tanzania, the countries that we go to, it's there. The The issue, as I see it very simplistically, is that oftentimes the monies don't get to the places where they should get. And that's why we figure that by doing it the way we do it, we trace every single dollar. And in effect, what happens, my parents left a legacy account for us to work from and also a house to use as our office. And so consequently, we guarantee that every single cent that is donated goes into the purchase of those items in that country. So we can track everything. And we see it, we see where it goes, and we know it's going to the right people. I love that idea. It's actually a component that's missing from some others that I've looked at where, you know, we collect the donations here and we put them in a sea can and we send them over and then you hear stories of they didn't all get to the right people or they didn't get to the people at all, especially, you know, most recently with disaster relief and that sort of thing. But I love the idea of putting money into the economy of the country by having it supplied locally. That's actually brilliant. Well, it, you know, it was trial and error with my parents when they started it off. And, and you know, they first year they gave out bed kits to 2,000 children. Now we're up to 60,000 a year. And, and you just learn as you go through it. The key is that it's volunteer-based, and we send about 100 volunteers overseas every year to monitor these uh, distributions and to hand out the bed kits and to take the photos. And... We land up then that we don't advertise about sleeping children. We let our volunteers talk about it, so we don't need to spend money on that. Nice. This is uh, Dave Dryden I'm speaking with. His parents started the charity 47 years ago, sleeping children around the world. So let's get to the ask. Uh, what is it you need people to do? We would just like people. We Sleep is so important. We know it. It's important to children. We're having a sleep day on November the 3rd. We picked that day because it's the day... Uh, the Friday before we have that extra hour of sleep that all of us treasure so much. <laughs> yeah. and, the, and, and we have had, in the past, schools and offices have on their own had something where they just say to their people or their students, wear your pajamas to school today or to uh, office today or school and, you know, donate some money for that privilege and send it to sleeping children. And last year, doing this uh, very... In a very simplistic way, we raised enough money to help uh, a thousand children. So we just want to do the same thing this year and increase it. Uh, the way to find out how to do it, really, Andrew, is to go on our website, that is scaw.org, and on it, it explains the ways that people have tried to do this and how it has worked.
scaw.org, the website. Basically, in a nutshell, here at the station, I go to the boss and I say, I want to do this. Everybody pays five bucks for the right to wear their pajamas to work that day. We collect it up. If seven of us do it, we bought a kit. That's right. And then uh, that money will go uh, probably to India because they will be our next distributions. And about four months from now, you'll get a picture of the child uh, that received your bid. I love it, Dave. Dave Dryden, Sleeping Children Around the World. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today, and best of luck with it this year. Thanks very much, Andrew. It's like a race this afternoon from one guest to the next. Enjoyed our first two. Have a feeling I'm going to enjoy our third as well. Don Levers, he's an author of the book, Loot for the Taking. Uh, probably should have said, Don, you're also an Albertan. Where do you live? I live out in Sturgeon County. There you go. But you didn't always. You were a Vancouver resident for a time? Vancouverite in the Okanagan, and um, then we come out to uh, beautiful, sunny Alberta. <laughs> nice. Uh, the reason you caught my attention, aside from running into me on the uh, fire escape one day, um, <laughs> was the fact that, as a constant, I think you're a, quite a frequent listener to the afternoon news, and you know, you knew two things. We don't normally talk to a lot of authors, and uh, we love dumb criminals. So we sort of overlooked one to, you know, arrange the other. So let's set it up. It's a fiction that you've written, but it's based on a real event. Tell us about the real event. It was inspired by a, a real heist uh, 40 years ago. Um, the, the criminals started off very smart because they drilled through 34 inches of concrete and steel into a private vault. This is, this is a uh, Ocean Eleven kind of deal, right? Exactly. Yeah. And they, I mean, they spent a weekend in the vault, cleaned out 1,200 safety deposit boxes and Got away with the loot. <laughs> what a great story. That, that by itself would be a great story, right? Except they all got caught, I think, in the end. But how did they get caught? Well, the, uh, you know, as far as being smart to do it, they only made one slight error, and that was uh, going to the airport in 1977. It was a lot easier to get things through the airport unless you had a bag that was so heavy that a, a luggage, burly luggage attendant couldn't lift it. <laughs> so the luggage attendant, he tries to lift the bag, it's too heavy, so I assume he opens it? It gets opened and out spills pieces of gold and cash and jewels and diamonds. Now how did they, and then we'll get to your book, but I'm curious about this one. I know you've done the research on it, of course. Um, so what happens at that point? So a baggage handler, I'm picturing him back in that area in the airport or out on the tarmac or wherever he was, and he's looking at this, and he's probably read or heard on the news that there was a big bank heist. So what happens then? At this point, they didn't even know the vault had been robbed and didn't find out until Monday morning. Oh, no. So this is Sunday night, and they call the police when the bag gets opened, and and um, one of the uh, suspects was arrested right on the plane before it left the before it left the terminal. And where was he flying to? He was, they, uh, three of them were flying back to Montreal. Uh, two of them had already left on an earlier plane because at one point they had a total of nine bags. <laughs> and I often wondered, well, if you guys had to split this up in that last bag as, and put in 50 pounds in both bags or whatever the half of it was, maybe they would have got away with it. Well, Don, I don't want to second-guess master criminals. <laughs> but why, if you wanted to leave, first of all, I don't know why you wanted to leave town. I, I'd have laid low in town, but I understand getting away from the scene of the crime. Why wouldn't you rent a truck and just drive back to Montreal? That's what I've asked myself for, you know, when I started looking into the story 30 years ago and doing some more research on it, why they didn't do that. 
I've never been able to contact any of the uh, the people who were involved in the actual heist, although I have had conversations now since doing some book signings throughout the uh, Western Canada with people who lost things in the heist, who had safety deposit doors, uh, boxes in there, and... Um, some very interesting characters that I've come across, but none of the actual criminals. Interesting. So Loot for the Taking is your book. It's based on that heist that you just described back in 1977. So does your book take place in 1977? I moved it up to 1987. Um, and uh, what my book is about is if you found the key to a safety deposit box and a private vault and could you convince three of your best friends that you had the greatest plan for a heist ever with three or four ordinary average guys? And wh- is that real, what these guys were, criminals. average guys, or were these career criminals? No, these were career criminals. Okay. My story is, well, what could you and I have done differently, Andrew? Would we have driven out of town? Would we have tried to catch a plane? So it, it's basically... Well, you know what I would have done, right, Don? We, we would have split right. the driving. Pardon me? We would have split the driving on the U-Haul. That's what we would have done. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and the other part of the whole thing is how would you and I find things? I mean, you've been in business for years. You're in the steel business. You probably know something about thermal lances that yep. steel. And uh, how would you and I have gone about getting that equipment? And once we did perhaps successfully pull it off, where would we get rid of all this diamonds and gold and and money. Yeah, another great question. So how long did it take you to write the book? I started writing it as a screenplay 30 years ago, but uh, life got in the way, and um, I ended up uh, starting it a year ago again uh, last June and uh, launched it in August. Now, Don, I again, you know, because we're making fun of uh, master criminals here, and I use the term a little loosely, but uh, <laughs> typically you write the book and then you write the screenplay. Not, you know, not to criticize your process here at no, all. No, I, I started as a screenplay because I, at the time I thought it was going to be easier, but I didn't know anything about screenwriting. <laughs> and, uh, but I came across a producer at CBC who's gone on to be very successful, and he suggested that uh, perhaps I write the book, and then maybe they make a movie out of it. Nice. Uh, is the book on sale already? Yes, the book is out now, and uh, I do have it at uh, Audrey's and chapters throughout the city. It's on Amazon and Kindle and Kobo. Um, this weekend, I'm doing signings at both uh, chapters North uh, Northtown Saturday uh, on Saturday, and then on Sunday, I'm at the uh, uh, Southgate. And then on the 28th, I'm at the Spruce Grove uh, chapters. Good stuff. Well, we talk all the time, uh, you know, with uh, Todd Hirsch uh, about supporting local business in uh, Alberta. We talk about this from a lot of different angles on this show, about uh, supporting the, you know, the local businessman. So we'd love for people to support you. If they want uh, more information, is the website lootforthetaking.com? Yeah, www.lootforthetaking.com. And uh, they can uh, reach out to me there and uh, be happy to, uh, um, you know, I've had a lot of responses from people uh, and asking for more information and, and some nice, uh, I got some nice um, reviews now up on the website so uh, of what people are saying about it. Good stuff. Don Lever's a local author. The book is called Loot for the Taking. Uh, more information can be found at lootforthetaking.com. Uh, Don, best of luck with it. It's a great story to base it on. I look forward to reading the book myself, and thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks very much for having me, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Mine as well. Bye now.
Coming up on 2.58 this Friday afternoon on the 6.30 Chet Afternoon News. We're going to take a break for your news headlines still to come on the show. I've got those Roger Waters tickets. i got the Pesh Mode tickets to give away. Um, but how excited are you? Coming up just after 3, Courtney and Dave Wilson from HGTV's Master of Flip will be in studio with me. And we're happy to take your questions on our text line, 6.30, 6.30. Or if I can find a couple of sets of headphones, uh, you can phone them as well, 496 Three. All of that coming right up.